Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I am finally, as promised, <laughs> after several episodes. Have you missed me? <laughs> yeah, once again. I am once again joined by my friend Tim Lawrence. Oh, reunited at last. <laughs> yeah. So did you have a nice holiday? Holiday? I don't know if it was a holiday. But it, yeah. in, pod, in podcast time. This is like you. You will have been gone for like weeks. <laughs> it feels like it felt longer. Actually, it was like couldn't even. I barely remembered that the podcast existed. Now this is obviously not true, but yeah, it did feel like I was kind of. I had a. I had a couple of conference trips that I was invited to. Okay, good. So what we are going to talk about today, we are going to um, uh, descend from the lofty general height of the history of the concept of the left to talking about a very specific concrete thing, one person. And that one person is Larry Levan. So, Tim, you is that can... is that it? Is that your intro? <laughs> <laughs> well, from yeah. the lofty heights of the new left to... Uh... No, that's fair enough. Well, from the general, this... from the general to the particular, is my point, really. Absolutely, no, and I think it's true. We were, we built, we were kind of planned this as a Larry Levan episode, and I think it's going to be. It's not just a Larry Levan episode, but it's um, it revolves partly around. Larry. But first of all, who is Larry Levan, and why would we have an episode about him? Why? Well, yeah, well, this is a, a reasonable question. I mean, um, up until you know, let's let's say a few years ago. Larry Levan, alongside with Frankie Knuckles, was sort of generally considered to be the undisputed key influential innovator within the history of, you know, let's call it black dance music, often touted as the greatest DJ of all time, the most influential remixer of all time. And these are always kind of slightly problematic kind of claims to make about anyone, especially as kind of history continues to unfold. But there is something about, uh, there certainly was something about Larry that did, you know, back then and still, you know, makes him a particularly compelling figure. So, yeah, he was, I mean, just to introduce him a little bit more basically, uh, he was born Lawrence Philpot, if I'm not misremembering. Grew up in, in Brooklyn. I mean, we'll come back to some of this stuff, but, you know, um, what we'll be covering today is his kind of, you know, his, the journey he made from going to some of these nascent downtown in particular parties with, of course, the loft being the one that, you know, he went to most frequently and was most influential on him because that's the case with almost everyone we seem to be talking about. And went on to, you know, become a, you know, a very promising and, you know, you know, as often remarked, extremely likable DJ. And we'll be covering that part of, you know, his journey, if you like, in today's episode. And then the bit we won't be getting to is that, you know, the next stage when he, uh, when in early 1977, started a DJ at the Paradise Garage. There's different ways of, of, of timing this, but certainly by September of 1978, it had kind of fully opened in the main room and was considered to have kind of taken whatever was going on at the loft to the next stage. And Larry Levan was the person who occupied this, this stage in DJing terms. So um, we'll, we'll, I'm sure this will come back to this, but was often seemed to kind of, you know, have embraced and absorbed what, date, what there was to learn from David Mancuso, but also did exactly the same with Nicky Siano, who we've been speaking about a lot more in this particular series. 
And so kind of was a hybrid, you know, advance on these two in a kind of, com- you know, com- combined way. And then he was also did something which um, David didn't do at all. And Nicky only did in a very, very hesitating way, which is he entered this recording studio and became, you know, a very significant remixer from sort of late 1978 or the autumn of 1978, you know, arguably through to his, his passing in 1992. So Larry Levan's kind of um, peak of his kind of, creativity and his productivity and his influence you know was arguably through to the end of 83 maybe the beginning of 84 and then then things generally changed in New York and they changed in Larry Levan's life as well so I think we'll save all of that story for a later a later point in time but that's just that this is just to say that uh, he was hugely influential and the garage was just seen as the most advanced kind of venue of its of its era the garage was you know heavily indebted to the loft as it as its basic you know invite only model and you know the emphasis on high quality uh, sound and a certain approach to a kind of expansive music selection and many other things that we identify with david and the loft but it was seen to kind of have taken it further now then it becomes a matter of debate about what you consider to be taking something further david loftheads maybe you jen pretty certainly me might think that is the the advances are not so not so clear cut i mean the music you wouldn't sort of say the music became more expansive you wouldn't say that the sound system became more precise but you would say the sound system became a lot more powerful while remaining precise and you would say that the music remained remarkably expansive given that instead of playing to basically 400 people or 500 people, Larry Levan was playing to 3,000 people. And when you go, you make those transitions, it gets harder and harder to maintain a very open aesthetic because there's the, the demand of pleasing the crowd and even peaking the crowd. These are open questions. But certainly when I got very into the whole, you know, dance music scene, really, in the early 1990s, it was all about Larry Levan. And I always felt at the time, although the comparisons are... are really in a way they're pointless but I felt that he was it seemed as though he was kind of more advanced than 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 Frankie Knuckles in some way Frankie Knuckles got you know was a very significant and influential figure representative if you like of the scene and in particular the black gay scene uh Larry never assumed that kind of diplomatic role uh or godfather-like role but he was the he was the he was this kind of very charismatic performer and innovator and I do think that as well as being the DJ, the fact that he was so so progressive within the, the, the studio did sort of take him to a different sort of level in terms of how he resonated. But, you know, then we go back to, we go back to David or as I went back to David in, in Love Saves the Day to a certain extent and it's like, well, and you, you open the episode by saying, yeah, we go from the lofty heights of the new left to the figure of, of Larry Levan. And yeah, I think, you know, we could... You wouldn't have given that intro if we were talking about David, probably. Well, that's true, of course. And of course, it's easy. Larry Levan gets elevated to a sort of mythic status, partly because, for very good historic reasons, the figure of the black queer becomes a figure of a sort of a kind of political radical, a kind of, you know, political radicalism in the 80s and 90s at a time when the politics of both the traditional and the new left have sort of receded and what's you know what is left is the, the opportunity to fight for representation for certain sort of marginalized groups and under those circumstances the importance of asserting like, the value of that black queer legacy uh, out with any connection with liberation struggles for example you know, comes to be seen as really important like, for really understandable reasons 
I think. That's partly what's going on during the period you've already talked about, when Levan gets really canonised as this iconic figure. No, you're quite right. And there was a sense in which, you know, the culture wars of the mid-80s onwards, there was this thing of it was like, you know, it was racist and it was homophobic. David kind of didn't quite fit into those wars in the same way that someone like Larry Levan did. But there's also this thing about there's this very energised uptake of dance music culture when, with the, you know, when house music broke, started to break in the UK, 86, 87, 88. And the figure, you know, the figure who was prominent at that point and still was kind of, you know, because the garage was open until September 87 was Larry Levan. And there were all these significant British aspiring DJs and label people who were going on this pilgrimage to the Paradise Garage and, and coming back, many of them, just obviously wouldn't have necessarily known about the loft. And you've made this point before. There is obviously, there's something to be said about in terms of spreading the culture about being more public and more accessible than, than David ever wanted to be. David had his reason, many reasons for doing what he did, but it's not the only way to kind of go about through the world. But yeah, Larry Levan was just, uh, it was just far easier to kind of see, understand his, his importance and his legacy. So anyway, these are some of the considerations, but I think we want to rewind a little bit and just look at the scene that Larry came into. One of the things that's interesting, you know, that's worth pointing out about this scene is it was the emergence of a nascent black gay scene. There is a sense of there being, you know, either a double or a triple con- exclusion because of they were black and they were gay and almost invariably they were working class as well. And it's the class element that often gets missed out of this, but it's the class element that might enable you, that, you know, enables the white gay scene, if you like, uh, that we tracked in some detail towards the beginning of this particular series that enabled, you know, this, these were often people who were involved in, in running businesses, let's, you know, and, and, you know, or be all professionals to kind of open their own spaces. And that was less, you know, there weren't, there wasn't the same cohort coming through in the black gay scene with the same level of, you know, I don't want to use the word financial muscle because it's, it's not like these were kind of, you know, millionaires or billionaires, but, um, but they, they were able to sort of do things that wasn't so easy to be repeated. So in the, in the, in the this kind of black gay scene. Love is, love is, love is the message. So the discotheque scene was basically below Harlem, below 96th Street or wherever in, in kind of Manhattan. It was, you know, it was a very white scene. There were a bunch of bars with jukeboxes that black gay kids would go to. I mean, Frankie Knuckles was talking to me about this uh, when I interviewed him for Love Saves a Day. Tabletops, Bosco, Andres, Jays, the Crystal Ballroom. But they, so they didn't have DJs, they had jukeboxes. There was the rent party scene which was significant. That's what David got into. And he went to this place called the Territorial, which is on 125th Street, which is like the main art, now Martin Luther King Avenue, is it? Anyway, um, up in Harlem, the main artery of Harlem, really. Um, so David went there and that was a that was sort of a black gay scene. And that was where David met Larry Patterson, who would become a, fe- a pretty significant figure at Prelude and then Zanzibar. And also some of the New Jersey scenes, that uh, the scene that was emerging in New Jersey and Newark. And Al Murphy, who's a very interesting figure, but who we can't really get into here, but he was a black gay model who became this really, he opened a place called Le Joc in 1974 in Newark that was basically the loft in Newark. And sound and a quite, really quite, I've been learning about it more recently, actually, a very interesting place. But So there was this kind of, there was an emerging scene, really. And certainly when, nine, when you know, this transformational 
development happened in early 1970, where the sanctuary was taken over by Seymour and Shelley and became much more open to, you know, marginalized sexual group, well, queer groups, gay groups, gay men in particular, um, and, you know, became more multicultural. That, you know, the scene started to open up. David, of course, you know, was very, you know, admitted all sorts of, you know, everyone who he was friends with into his party at the loft and the party that became known as the loft. And there was a very significant proportion of black gay men would go there. And indeed, um, that's where Larry and, and Frankie would end up going most frequently. So the, there was a shifting scene. And then there was, I just, I just want to sort of mention that there was also Better Days, which we'll come back to, which was a very important a venue for black gay men, which kind of got going in the summer of 1972. So, and it was just around this time that basically uh, Larry Levan and, and Frankie Knuckles kind of got got into the kind of this downtown party scene. Before then, they were a little bit more involved with what we, we could call the nascent black drag ball scene. So, I mean, the drag ball scene goes back decades, but it had been very much a white dominated scene. Um, even if uh, a number of its events were held up in up in Harlem, but like all in the contest, all the pr- the prizes would invariably go to kind of white contestants. For example, it was a notorious strand of racism forming through that scene. That started to change, you know, with the emergence of the first black and then uh, a little bit later Latin drag houses, and that proved to be Larry Levan's kind of entry into this kind of, the kind of party scene. I mean, before that, I just wanted to give a sort of a shout out really to this figure, to Better Days and this figure of T. Scott, who in a sense became the father figure. Yeah, a a senior symbolic presence, presence, who was older than Larry Levan and Frankie Knuckles and a bunch of other DJs that would would come through within, you know, that, that second generation, if you like. T. Scott, who was... You know, just this much loved, very you know, soulful R and B oriented, funky DJ got his breakthrough at Better Days, which had opened in early 1972. It had a black female lesbian DJ called Bert Lockett was the inaugural DJ there, located on 49th Street and 8th Avenue, which is right by Times Square. Uh, which is that obviously this is old Times Square, not New Times Square. Where New Times Square is kind of disnified and has lots of banks and is you know closes pretty early at night old Times square was just a this kind of uh, magnet for sex and small-scale entrepreneurial activity of all sorts really and just like you know the the marginalized of the world would kind of congregate there really it was kind of like you know almost a festival atmosphere i kind of suspect but you know pretty rough as well and um definitely vibrant and better days was right by there and so a lot of the sex workers and hustlers and have you would also kind of work on Times Square and then might go and dance in better days. And this is where T. Scott got his break. And he went in and he kind of, you know, he sort of turned it around, really. It was it was doing pretty well, but he he put in a proper sound system. It, T. Had, T. Scott had been going to the loft and he started to introduce some of the things that David was introducing to the loft so that he could basically, you know, turn it into a non-stop dance club that kind of mirrored, you know, indeed the loft and some other places that were opening. And Larry Levan would go on to become a regular at Better Days, you know, a little later on as well, and would also do some DJing at Better Days, and certainly look to T. Scott as being this mentor figure. Mentor is probably the word I was looking for before. This was the begin. It was sort of the beginnings of a group of DJs who were black and also gay coming together. 
I mean, I suppose I would just sort of throw out this basic erroneous assumption that I kind of had when I started to research the period, if you like, uh, about which I didn't know a huge amount. And I just assumed that all of the pioneering DJs were black and they were gay. And lo and behold, it turned out they were, all, they were pretty much all Italian-American, the very first generation, uh, for various reasons. One of them being that it was the, you know, a lot of the discotheques where most of the jobs were to be had, of course, were, were indeed run by the mafia. So it helped to be Italian and get a job there. And there was a certain thing about being ethnic and relatively uneducated and potentially relatively unskilled that made DJing a viable you know, profession and something to have fun with. So, so it was interesting for for me to just kind of, I suppose, come to to understand that you know that first generation was was largely Italian American, but it was T. Scott, and then soon after Larry Levan, as we're going to track in this episode, soon after sort of Larry Levan and, and Frankie coming through. Okay, so we have some music. Yeah, let's. So let's absolutely let's listen to the track that I was wanted to pick out from a um, a T. Scott T. Scott's first list he contributed to Record World, Vince Letty's Disco Files column in Record World, I should say, uh, which was the first column was was published on 16th of November 1974. There's a lot of the tracks on that list that are tracks we've already listened to, so I wanted to pick out one that we haven't. And and this, the track we're going to listen to is B.B. King, King's version of a track called Philadelphia. What year did that come out? So it's seven. I think it must be seventy-four. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really great sort of funky guitar track. Yeah, yeah. I thought you might like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hadn't heard it before. It is Baker Harrison Young are on the rhythm section. Oh, is it? Reco- it is recorded in Philadelphia, and it does suddenly. It, there is a kind of you know there is a resemblance to the kind of you know the rhythm section of, of say Love Is the Message, which which came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. It came out actually. Now I come to think of it. it was was it recorded pretty much around the same time? I get. I always forget if Love is the Message was the end of 73 or the end of 74. I think it was the end of 73. So, yeah, so it was a little later. I kind of, I, I sort of would prefer the track if it had some BB King vocals, I guess. That was the only thing I thought about. Yeah, well, but the guitar is, the guitar in itself is really impressive. Yeah. It really shows off his chops in an interesting way. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because you don't get many tracks like this in this era, like no. basically a disco beat or a disco rhythm section. No, I was thinking, and that. then an instrumental. So when jazz, when house music comes through, they get like endless numbers of tracks where you just have a house. You know, you have a, you have the beats laid down, and then someone yeah, exactly. jams over the top. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it could have because it shows that it could have been done. They could you could imagine an entire genre of getting these. Especially these, you know, these blues guys, these old blues guys, or or some of the rock guitarists, you know, into a studio to jam along to, you know, Baker and Harris. I don't, it's, um, it's sort of, it's a shame that it wasn't done actually, because I do, because when it works, that, you know, house beat with a guitar, everybody loves it. It does, it does sort of sound great when it works, when it's a decent beat and a bass line and a good jam. So you sort of, um, 
yeah, I think mm. it's, it's a shame there wasn't more of it at the time. Mm. But it's also, I guess, it, it sort of it feels sort of proto house in, in because it's all about the dynamic, just the rhythm and this one melodic line you're focusing on, rather than the lush kind of semi orchestral sound. I mean, there's some, there, I think there is something about that. Expect what came to be seen as the what came to be the Philadelphia sound and a sort of mainstream disco sound, and it's it's even associated to some extent with some of Larry the Van's own mixes, isn't it? This, this sort of lushness, it's sort of consistent with consumer culture reaching a new peak. Like everything, you know, people are experiencing a sort of level of physical luxury in various aspects of life that is unprecedented. And then later on, you know, there's something about the austerity of there's something like the austerity of this kind of, you know, stripped down house sound, which makes the sort of luxuriance of conventional disco come to seem a little bit dated. And this, but this is sort of anticipating it. This has that sort of, it has that slightly austere quality while also being really, really compelling on the dance floor. So, yeah, so as all this was going on, or rather just a little bit, you know, maybe just a couple of years before, it's hard to put a precise date on this, you know, the drag ball scene was coming through. But before the, you know, the black, so the black drag ball scene. So this, yeah, this was, it started officially, you could say officially, if you like, in 1972, when uh, Crystal Labeja co-promotes a ball and forms the House of Labeja, um, and that was 72. And then the House of Corey forms in 72 as well. 74, there's a House of Dior. 75, there's what's called the House of Wong. And also the House of Dupre. These are all kind of drag ball houses that have a mother and a father. And they're kind of alternative families for, uh, in particular, young black gay men uh, and, and drag queens who want to, who feel like, you know, are alienated and, you know, are often, you know, marginalised and sidelined within their family homes or are not able to come out to parental and family figures and so seek these alternative families where they can you know, express their you know their sexuality and as I mentioned there have been certain frustrations about existing within a drag ball scene where white contestants were always judged to be more beautiful than black contestants and this this map this was the currency in which they they were dealing effectively uh, including, you know, what happens when you put on a costume and you, you, you know, you you pass as a woman uh, or you become a woman. Because how you looked and how well you, you know, how convincing you were in this look was very important. And uh, in response to being marginalised and you know not given proper, you know, time and space and attention within this existing drag ball scene in the early seventies, these parallel houses emerged. What I'm trying to say is this wasn't the beginning of black drag culture per se. It was just the beginning of these houses. There had always been black drag queens who have been kind of, you know, participating in this wider scene that goes back several decades. But it was around this time that Larry LeVan got involved in the scene. And um, I mean, I don't know if he was in the House of Wong, but uh, he um, basically had a relationship with Duchess, who became, uh, if I'm not getting this mixed up, the kind of founding figure of the House of Wong. So Larry was basically hanging out within this kind of scene, helping them, you know, prepare their, you know, incredibly elaborate costumes and dresses for these balls. 
And uh, and this is how Larry got to meet uh, Frankie Knuckles, a drag queen that who Frankie knew called Gerald, who introduced Frankie to Larry. Larry was from Brooklyn. Uh, Frankie Knuckles was from the South Bronx. It seemed that at the time Gerald was dating Larry, so I guess there was you know different relationships. It sounds it seems as though were coming and going. I think it was a pretty free and easy kind of period. I mean, Larry Levan at this point I think is maybe fifteen or sixteen years old. He's very young. As is as is as is Frankie Knuckles, so they were drawn into this expressive scene where you know the drag balls were extremely elaborate in terms of their competitiveness, but and, and contests that were starting to emerge, but also the in particular the dresses that would they would make themselves. And it was Larry Levan who took Frankie into you know the Manhattan scene, if you like, and introduced him in particular to the loft. Um, and that seems to have happened around about 1972. But Larry Levan and, and David Mancuso definitely hit it off. There's a sort of, it's, it's a semi-rumour, and it's, it might, looks like it's probably true that at some point, I think probably 15 years later, they had an affair. I mean, David was always like, Larry and I were not lovers. We were, if anything, we were, if, if you want to call us anything, call us music lovers. <laughs> you know, David also kind of insisted on his privacy with these things and um so i don't think it really matters either here or there what what what's clear is that there was definitely a, a good connection between larry and david uh, and larry absolutely loved the loft and um, and was very receptive and into the scene as well as connecting with the wide with a wider black gay scene by going to the loft um they also kind of you know entered into the into an emerging network and so when Nick, after Nicky Siano opened the gallery in the spring of 73 initially as a straight venue Frankie Knuckles started to work for him I mean we should briefly say I mean I'm, I'm sure most people know this but Frankie Knuckles he hung out almost primarily as Larry Levan's mate for this part of the 1970s uh, but in 1977 went to live in Chicago because he was invited to be the DJ at the warehouse, and this, you know, and he did, and Frankie Knuckles developed his legendary status through his work at the warehouse. And then after the warehouse closed, uh, a place called the Power Plant, uh, and it was during this Frankie Knuckles' time at the Power Plant that house music came through, and and Frankie would soon come to be known as the God. You know, these are always problematic terms, but anyway, the Godfather of house music. So Frankie's fame would come a bit later. At this point, he. And Larry are just really good mates, just, you know, having a great time being kind of, you know, I think Frankie said to me, you know, we were we were club kids before the term was introduced. Uh, just like being at all the openings, first on the dance floor, friendly, charismatic, kind of everywhere, having a really good time. Love is the Message, a podcast about music, counterculture, parties and politics with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. Hi, this is Jem again, just reminding you that if you can possibly go to your podcast app when you listen to this, give us a five-star review. Even if you don't think we deserve it, give us a five-star one, because the other ones, all they do is make it harder for people to find the show, less likely that they will. Uh, if you have time to write a review, that's brilliant. If you don't, just give us the rating. It really helps. All forms of support are really useful to us. Obviously, the Patreon donations really make the whole thing possible, but... If you can't afford a Patreon donation, if you can just give us a good rating, give us a give us a review, push it out to your friends on social media, it all really helps the podcast. Thanks very much indeed.
So Frankie starts to, you know, get a job at the gallery. Um, then in the summer of 73, David makes his trip to Europe. The loft closes for the summer. Nikki reopens the gallery as a place where that isn't straight, but is more, you know, open, just has a different conception of itself that is much more aligned with the entrance, the door policy at the loft. And around sometime in this whole period, Larry Levan also started to help Frankie Knuckles and, and worked at the gallery. And their jobs stretched from balloon, you know, blowing up balloons to putting acid in the front in the punch. And uh, they both became uh, close with Nicky Siano, but it seems that Larry became particularly close with Nicky Siano. I think very briefly they were lovers. There's just lots of brief affairs are going down in this period. And it was it was Nicky who uh, we've obviously interviewed for this series and is a key figure for this series invited Larry into the DJ booth and basically Nikki said I gave Larry the list of rules because at that point there were I don't know if it was however many rules there were but there was a you know it's like you don't chop off the vocal you don't have vocals running into each other do you know whatever it might be there's a whole the whole things that you should and shouldn't do as a DJ David was more mystical more ethereal maybe more jazz oriented um bit more serious uh, and as a figure somewhat more introverted and you know, obviously this kind of pining figure where and Nicky Siano was was kind of gayer there were more vocals there was it was more intensity you know he wanted to stretch the peak for longer wanted to make people scream louder and Larry kind of was in these two formative settings and you know basically listened to both was influenced both and was seen to kind of you know have the ability to kind of form this kind of hybrid figure who embody David and Nikki simultaneously and all of, you know, these other things that kind of would go on to happen as, as, as music develops and new music was coming through. But again, we're slightly getting ahead of ourselves for now. It's like Larry Levan being, you know, just enamored with these two parties and these two figures. That's a really good description. I don't, I don't really have any questions. No questions to this. No, no to this good. stage. It's a really, it's a really good account. It, other than, other than your, other than your critique of my elevation of David as the, uh, the world, ultimate. a world historic individual, as as Hegel would. Well, this it. this is obviously true. It is. Well, it is sort of true. Right? He is a sort of world historic individual, actually. But the world histo- the point about the world historic individual is that they somehow synthesise, the, the, they concretise the universal. Well, this is exactly. So, what, I mean, you're you're making my case stronger and stronger. Well, that's true. Yeah. Any any other right arguments you want to add that support <laughs> rather than undermine my claim? Uh, no, not not at this time. No. <laughs> you'll stop digging for the time being. Okay, so Larry Larry Levan got his uh, DJing break at the Continental Baths that we did speak about earlier in this series. I like the way this is this is a shadow version of all the, many of the things we've already been talking about in this series so far. So yeah, we spoke about the Continental Bars and Bette Midler and you know the emergence of one of the first gay discotheques in that bathhouse. And uh, Georges Latour, a Peruvian dancer who was dating Steve Ostro, the owner of the Continental Bars, and was uh, inputting into it significantly in terms of the DJing, because Georges Latour was just going out constantly at all of these parties we've talked about and was one of my favourite interviewees for the... Love Saves the Day and Life and Death on the New York dance floor. Uh, George Latour just remembered like Larry Levan just basically coming along and you know pestering him to be able to sort of DJ, and just also just also Larry and Frankie hanging out at the Continental Bars an awful lot. I mean, like sleeping there for days on end, basically. Um, 
they were obviously leading a very kind of free and you know alternative existence in a way that maybe was more possible than than in today's much more surveyed society i don't know they were hanging out the continent bars it's hardly like a hub of, of you know black men or black dancers um so a guy called joey bonfiglio became uh, the dj of the continental bars i don't think he was he wasn't the first to be around uh, the early late 73 74 uh, that's when joey bonfiglio or maybe it's filio bonfiglio he became the dj larry levan stars at a date joey but uh, he became the alternate DJ for Joey Bonfiglio and also the person who was kind of the, the lighting technician. And uh, and then at one point around uh, Memorial Day weekend in 1974, Joey Bonfiglio wanted to get a pay rise. It was, re- it was rejected. Joey Bonfiglio left and that's when Larry Levan took over the turntables, basically the Continental Baths. And um, yeah, that was Larry's first steady DJ job, effectively. It's not that Georges... Le- uh, at all thought that Larry was incredibly talented. This is, you know, that we we can still distinguish between the legend that Larry became and, and you know, a young a young African American guy who was apparently really sweet, good fun, and a bit kind of uh, forgetful or absent minded at points, but really into really into the music and the culture and just you know raring to sort of you know is raring to get going. So let's hear some music and one of the I know that this was a big favourite of Larry LeVan for some time and it was released in 1974 and this is Shirley and Company Shame 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 Well, I've always, I've always liked that record. It's all, I mean, it was still remembered. It was still well remembered in the '90s as this sort of gay anthem. It was always remembered in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way. I mean, you know, the idea of pride as being the thing which gay people had to express was because pride is seen as the opposite of shame. And shame is so sh- the idea of shame as being the thing which you sort of have to escape from, but maybe also you have to cathartically dramatize in this rather sort of over the top song sometimes is all is always um it's always circulating around that quite early gay culture in an interesting way, and that the popularity of this track was definitely associated with that yeah, I didn't thought of that actually that's a good point um I mean, there's also. I mean, obviously, these. This is also about the kind of retooling of what lyrics might kind of mean. Yeah, of course, it's not. I mean, it's not a song explicitly about gay shame. Yeah, I need to check the lyrics, but I mean, on the cover of this out, on the cover, there's a picture of Richard Nixon. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's so right. yeah, I that's guess what it's supposed to be about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, I would need to check the lyrics, but certainly. So it's, and it's kind of a, it's around the same era as George McRae, Rock Your Baby, Hughes Corporation, Rock the Boat. Uh, David actually really, I think I'm just trying to remember which one it was, to my surprise, because I always think of these as sort of pop hits in a way. They almost don't quite sound like disco. No. Even. They have much more sort of soul, 
yeah. tracks almost to me. Even if there is a clear cut distinction between soul and disco, they lean towards soul. But anyway, I think Shame, Shame, Shame is in the same period. It almost has a similar feel. But the thing that um, I sort of I think it also has is a sort of bit of a Caribbean kind of element, which those don't. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, which is kind of quite good fun um, and really nice. And there was always something about Mick Jagger with this record that I never fully understood, and I'm not sure I still do, but apparently he was very into this record. And when he he recorded a record called Hot Stuff, this was supposed to be a bit of the shame, 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 was supposed to be some somehow an inspiration for that record. So yeah, so that was a that was a big record for Larry Levan anyway, and uh, Frankie Knuckles became the alternate DJ with with Larry at the Continental Bar, so they kind of were enjoying sort of spending a lot of time there together. If we're going to keep Nicky Siano as first generation, uh, which he just about was, first generation is maybe seventy to seventy three. Then yeah, then uh, I think you know we can say that Frankie. I mean, you, or you could we could just say look, oh, the first generation was like Francis Grasso and David Mancuso, and that everyone who came after them is sort of second generation. I think there's a certain truth in that. But I think you're right. It doesn't yeah. matter. Also, well, I sort of I'm thinking about this record actually. I'm thinking about this hearing this like years ago in in club context. It's not. I'm thinking it's that other record that shame, shame, shame. I was thinking of that was associated with some sort of experience of shame. I mean, this oh, yeah. this. I oh, mean. Yeah. Uh, I can't even remember who recorded that. Mm. But um, no, this one was always much more associated. I mean, this is shit because the lyric, because the chorus goes shame on you and the Shirley yeah. and Company song, doesn't it? Yeah, shame, yeah. shame on you. Yeah. So it's much more a sort of, you know, it's a sort of, it's a sort of empowerment vibe. Mm. This would always get played alongside, like before things like I Will Survive. Mm. So it was this, you know, this idea of the sort of, uh, this early idea of the black diva kind of you know wagging her finger and um in a way which is sort of um you know it was quite compelling yeah and well you can certainly see i can see me i mean you can sort of see with Mick jagger i mean Mick jagger he does that i mean that thing he was doing from the 60s that kind of strutting around on stage and and sort of wagging his finger around you know you can see how that that Mick jagger dance everybody can visualize this song is perfect for doing that dance too. <laughs> so I can see why he would be really sort of obsessed with it. Yeah, you can imagine him singing it as well. Yeah, well, you know, the, as we know, the Stones were very drawn to kind of rhythm. You know, rhythm and blues was you know, like formative for them. And there is there, there's something very strut, indeed strutty about Mick Jagger, isn't there? There's he's almost like a he's almost like a drag act of some sort. Yeah, it's true. That is true, um, yeah. Early, early Mick Jagger. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah, pre Ayn, Ayn Rand, Mick Jagger. <laughs> so, what happens next? Larry Levan got his next job basically at what was turned out to be the only functioning loft style party, if you like, of this particular period, and that was called the Soho Place which uh, was opened by Mike Stone, who was a regular at the loft and, you know, in, and, uh, in interviews basically told me that he wanted to be David Mancuso, who was an Africa, African-American gay man. And his partner, Richard Long, who, who was already getting involved with sound, had been had sold David his first set of, a pair of clipshorns, uh, helped David build, um, not altogether successfully, it turned out, uh, 
the sub base to go with David's tweeters when David introduced those ideas around 72, 73, and was working in his own sound equipment workshop that was located in his apartment on 452 Broadway, which was just south of where Mancuso was living on um, 647 Broadway. I think I think Richard actually was in Soho, where what came to be known as Soho, whereas David was in NoHo, north of Houston Street, south of Houston Street. And David was closed down in the, in the summer of 74, sorry, June 74, as we've recounted previously. The gallery was shut down soon after. And this place called the Soho Place, which was opened effectively in Richard Long's workshop, on 452 Broadway and had initially sort of started as a series of dinner parties in 1973, turned itself into, you know, a new loft style party after David was closed down in June 74. This was Mike Stone's direct suggestion to Richard Long. Of course, we should say Richard Long, we have done previously, but if it's not everything is kind of perfectly memorised and it is hard to remember all these names sometimes. Richard Long would go on to become the key figure who would build, with many suggestions coming from Larry Levan, the sound system at the Paradise Garage, which many people would go on to feel was the ultimate sound system of all time. Um, and, you know, in many ways it was of its type, there's no question. Um, so this is this is what you know Richard Long and Larry Levan go on to have you know a, a long and influential association with each other and collaboration. But right here, right now, we're in the Soho place. Mike Stone, because he wanted to be David Mancuso, uh, tries to DJ himself. But um, it's David who suggested to Richard Long that if he needs a DJ, he might want to check out Larry Levan. And Larry Levan had a bit of a trial and. Um, that you know, Mike Stone was blown away by, um, and basically said, "Yeah, you know, the job is yours." Um, so Larry Van became the DJ at the Soho Place from around the seven of seventy-four. Well, actually, sorry, it opened in Halloween seventy-four. There you go. So maybe five months after, four or five months after David was was shut down. One thing I didn't really fully appreciate until I was going through all these David interviews fairly, you know, over recent months and even a few years now, is that David, this is because David would never go out. He was, you know, he basically, you know, he was a bit of a recluse in some ways. He was into the rent party scene, admittedly, in the late 60s. But once he had the loft, he didn't, he didn't leave it a lot. Um, he didn't really, and he wasn't, he didn't feel comfortable in the kind of clubs and discotheques and transient places. But he did go a lot to the Soho place and, and absolutely, you know, and absolutely loved it. He went there with a, a guy who'd been dancing at the loft since even, well, since the beginning, when, since the loft became the loft, but also when David was holding parties in 647 Broadway in the late 60s, a guy called David Felton, who's still dancing at the loft today. Um, yeah, and so I interviewed David. Uh, not that long ago, and David reminded me that you know the night he went there with one night he went there with David, Larry just got this new record that had been released by Consumer Reports called "Ease On Down the Road," which was from the soundtrack of The Wiz, which was basically a black reversioning of The Wizard of Oz. So yeah, so and apparently Larry Levan played this this track five times that night. So really? I it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I thought it'd be a nice one to hear. Don't you care 
Well, it's a pretty classic piece of sort of disco funk, isn't it? Funky disco. I think I first heard it compiled on some track, some compilation with that kind of a title. Mm. And Consumer Report is such a great name for a band. It's sort of yeah, well, it's after, after, after weather reports. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's also remarkable, you know. It sounds like a sort of 80s postpone. Yeah, um, yeah. I just think this is incredibly spirited and fun, you know, because it's, it's from a musical, basically. So yeah, yeah. It, it, has, yeah, it has yeah. an element of that. And um, maybe that kind of strand of music is underutilized in in parties because it's like i mean david would play stuff from um what's it called a west side story west side story yeah, yeah. so david would play that uh, and people would love it maybe 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 we should be playing more musical yeah maybe we should tracks yeah. or, or maybe we shouldn't but this is one that works and um yeah so just to kind of mention sort of in passing that the you know richard long really developed his kind of sound technologies during this period and you know his trialing you know, he's working on his sound system constantly, working on new speakers and uh, and you know, these parties who would, you know, test them out, basically. You know, Alex Rosner had arguably been the more influential, well, I think definitely the more influential sound installation guy from the late 60s and early 70s. But around this period, Richard Long emerges as probably, you know, as a as a key rival and and probably soon goes on to become more influential than Alex Rosner. But we are going to do a whole series on sound systems, dear listeners, uh, in the not too distant future. So i.e. sometime in the next five years. <laughs> so um, we'll come back to all of this, I'm sure, in some detail. But yeah, Richard Long is really developing his sound in the Soho place. And Larry Levan just, you know, became a, this is when he started to, you know, become Larry Levan, if you like. Um, a bit more obviously, you know, the club, he was very popular. Uh, the, you know, Soho place became very crowded. Um, it had problems with the neighbours. It got shut down because of problems with the neighbours. The problems were, you know, definitely to do with the amount of sound and the bass that Richard Long was generating. Uh, it may well have also had something to do with, you know, having a lot of black gay men in, in Soho, which, uh, you know, the white artist community might not have been as welcoming of as you would hope they would be. Um, but anyway, it was, it was, it was, the Soho place was um, shut down. Uh, I don't have a date to hand, but it must have been some point in 75, pretty much. Um, so it may have been, it may have just like had a peak run for even as little as a year or so. But that's, you know, you've got a weekly party. This is obviously quite significant. Free your mind and your ass will follow. So just kind of to, to give a bit of an outline of what I think is going to be the last, you know, step of this particular part of the Larry Levan story, uh, which takes us up to, you know, almost the eve of the opening of the Paradise Garage, because we're going up to the 76, and the garage kind of opens in January 77. And this is when Larry goes to play at a venue called Reed Street, which, like the Soho Place, is basically modelled on the loft and is opened by a guy called Michael Brody, who, of course, goes on to become the owner of the Paradise Garage, who, like it seems everyone else of any influence and significance of this whole historic period, you know, had his transformative experience on the dance floor uh, of the loft in the early 1970s, where he went with Mel Sharon. And Mel has a very peculiar, slightly weird passage about this in his autobiography. But anyway, in interviewing Mel, I was like, so... 
you know, was was the loft the kind of defining influence on Michael Brody when he opened Reed Street in the garage? And and Mel says yes. And so Michael Brody, uh, at the suggestion of Larry Levan, uh, at, at the suggestion of David, that Michael Brody then calls Larry Levan and offers him a job. And Larry Levan didn't know who Michael Brody was. There was no reason he should. But he went to Reed Street. The address was 143. It was in an old refrigerator. And he saw basically Alex Rosner, not Richard Long, had installed the sound system there and it featured a Macintosh amplifier, which was the amplifier that David was using at this particular point, pre-Levinson, uh, Bozak mixer and Clipshorns. And Larry Levan said in a later interview with Manny Lehman, guy who'd work in Vinyl Mania, the record store that more or less serviced the Paradise Garage, Larry Levan told Manny Lehman in an interview, it rem- Reed Street, this new venue, reminded me a lot of the old loft. So he started to play there um, as the DJ, much like Soho Place. It was just a big success. Um, it was, you know, it became crowded. People loved it. There was a real party atmosphere. You know, Larry would go on to develop a reputation for being somewhat mercurial, unpredictable, you know, mood swings. You know, he started from 1984 onwards to get involved with what we might call kind of hard drugs. I don't know if that's an acceptable term for heroin, but, you know, but things certainly shifted. But before this is a, we have a different kind of figure and also, you know, a pre-remix, pre-Paradise Garage figure where it's just like, you know, you're just having a lot of fun playing in front of basically two or 300 people. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what we like to do, basically. Not, not that we have, you know, should be... I said, oh, I to mention ourselves in the same breath. Well, are, are, are either of us world historic figures? That's... No. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you are. Yeah, maybe yeah. you are. I think you will go on to be recognised as one gem. Yeah, probably. If you're yeah. not already, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only after my only after my death. <laughs> Tragic. Well, no, I think it's going to be a long time coming. <laughs> My recognition <laughs> as a world's historic figure. So. No, anyway, but we do. But anyway, I'm, what I'm trying to evoke, of course, is just how much fun it can be to have put on some music with 200 people in the room. It's really endearing. There isn't. There's no room for a superstar in that kind of situation. It doesn't really. Doesn't really. It doesn't compute. And um, yeah, Larry developed more of a reputation. Uh, Reed Street, you know, who's getting going at Soho as a Reed Street that um, things really, you know, he's, you know, we're starting to take off for him. So to just get in a bit of music from Larry Levan's first list in Disco File, the Vincelletti Disco Files column, which appeared in on twentieth of December nineteen seventy five. So he was at Reed Street, and I thought of bringing out a few records from here, but in the end, thought we'd just go for Donald Bird. Change makes you want to hustle which comes from the album No Wonder I Want to Dance. Yeah, it's funny. I've got that album, and I, I've played tracks off it a few times, oh, right, but never okay. this one. Oh, okay, interesting. But it's this is to me. It's a, it's a nice. It is a nice. It's a fun track, as you said. It's fun, but it's also, it, I mean, it's the hustle. It's a hustle, isn't it? It's part of. It's sort of part of the hustle craze. Yeah. Of that moment. Yeah, when everyone was 
every known musician was trying to record a disco track pretty much. It's sl- actually, maybe it's a tiny bit before that phase, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I guess it is 75, yeah. So no, 75, it is a bit before that, yeah. Yeah. But, um, Wait, so when was, was the the hustle codified as a dance? Well, question. I think it was 75. Van McCoy, um, is, it must be 75. Well, I mean, that's that's the big record, isn't it? I mean, the dance had been, um, you know, it had been a sort of, la- it was a Latin dance that had been going for, I don't know exactly when it's traced back to, if it's the late 60s or if it's the 70s. Oh, I could be way off, I, d- I can't remember. I mean, so other track. I mean, I won't go through all the tracks, but there was another record I was going to maybe play from this Larry Devan list, which I think also captures something, which is Babe Ruth Elusive. kind of rocky soulful funky jazzy you know powerful guitar powerful vocals it's a bit like you know it's got a musical kind of quality to it when i say i mean stage musical almost it's quite gestural yeah yeah demonstrative and you know emotional you know it's the same with shame 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 it's so these it's the very raw and emotional records yeah Um, so maybe this is the early larry levan aesthetic i was just thinking about that donald bird track that that change it does get quite intense towards the end actually in a way i often forget like it starts off sounding like a fairly conventional almost big bandy sort of hustle tune but it gets quite intense and that that, that intensity is something larry levan you know he becomes associated with doesn't he so michael go we'll just end with like michael gomes who becomes very close with nicky siano regular at the gallery edits this this sort of newsletter called Mixmaster, which is just, you know, it's a lovely kind of account of week to week, month to month in, in the kind of, you know, alternative, you know, quizzical, humorous, sharp, uh, gossipy account of the of the scene. And he went to hear Reed Street, uh, and sorry, went to Reed Street to hear Larry Levan. And I just got Reed's little passage that appears in, I forget which data it is. Of, of which issue it is or which number it is of Mixmaster, but he says, when we got there at 4.30 in the morning, the passing was still jumping and lollipops were dangling from the balloons. Uh, I found out why Larry was voted best disc jockey of the year at the Turn It Out Awards. His audience really loves him. It was all, promise you call me tomorrow, Larry. So, um, so yeah. So this is where we're at. Larry Levan. You know, the innocent period, the fun period, the pre-industry, pre-star, but, you know, just obviously, you know, an ins- you know really, ins- you know, someone who was loved uh, and was just a great party DJ. Um, and I, mean, I don't want to suggest that what comes afterwards is somehow a corrosion or corruption or lesser. I mean, he goes on to become this, you know, hugely impressive figure. Uh, but this is the early, happy, easy, just having a good fun, good time stage. Yeah, well, I would say with to to tie it into other things we've been talking about on the series that this is still this is still a moment. Although in retrospect, it's hard to see why. That in in some ways, this is still a, re- a moment of relative social optimism. People mm. don't know what's coming down the tracks mm. in 1975. Mm. People do not know 
that what's coming is Thatcher and Reagan and neoliberalism and monetarism and austerity and post post Fordism as deindustrialization rather than as liberation from the drudgery of Fordism. And you can sit you can see how I think tracking the career of Larry Devan is going to be an interesting way of thinking, indeed of particularizing that general global experience because it at this moment there's a great deal of optimism and to some extent the the grounds for that optimism has has been the ground i'm 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 doing a play on words different uses of the word ground the ground for the grounds for that optimism have been cleared by some of the struggles of the 60s even going back to the 50s um and early set and into the early 70s that's what's made it possible now for somebody like larry to be so carefree at this moment in a way it would not have been possible publicly in any previous historic moment and then in some ways, what's going to make him such a compelling figure, I think, is that, you know, everyone is multiple. Every, we all contain multitudes. And his some of the aspects of him and his project are going to keep intensifying, partly in response to the kind of parallel experience of you know, gay liberation, anti-racism, sort of continuing and continuing to become more general, going to be continuing to become more normalised. But at the same time, there's many of the grounds for optimism shrinking. In various ways, I think that's going to be a useful way of thinking about, you know, what makes him so special and what continues to make him this quite urgent figure. Because there's a sort of urgency about the later Larry, which isn't there yet, as well. I think there's a kind of urgency, which, and I think it's, I think you're right that right now what we're hearing is this quite carefree sound, which I think is, I think is quite significant. Hmm. This whole next phase isn't even on the horizon yet. There's no, there's no one is imagining the garage. Prince Street, which is an expansion of the loft, hasn't happened. There's no Studio 54. There's no Saturday Night Fever. It remains a pretty innocent scene. There's only been one Billport disco convention. So it's the beginning of the marketing. You know, indeed, Van McCoy's The Hustle's probably come through this year. Anyway, you're completely right. And we are, yeah, we are. There's still room for thinking it's going to be ha- ha- everyone will live happily ever after in a you know village community kind of way almost yeah yeah if it's the center of new york yeah yeah all right great that was great tim thanks thanks for listening everyone yeah thanks jen thanks everyone um as always if you can you spread the word about the show people have been doing that it's been really helping us give us a five star review if you don't think it deserves five stars you don't need to tell us it's fine <laughs> <laughs> if you can uh, spare a few coins do, do you not want to imp- do you don't want to improve the show Jen? <laughs> do you support us on patreon if you can the Just ignoring me <laughs> <laughs> the links the links are in the show notes and and whatever you do thanks very much for listening have a good yeah. week or two and yeah. you will hear us next time bye-bye everyone thanks. bye tim bye jem thanks everyone bye-bye Thank you.